Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. What a blessing to have the praise band with us this morning. Thank you, Preston, for your presence here and uh, bringing us together to worship in a new way this morning. We are in the fourth week of a sermon series entitled Neighboring, which is built around a book by Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon called The Art of Neighboring. And we've been talking about what Jesus says are the two most important things in life. Loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Everything else, Jesus says, is secondary. So how's it going? Loving our neighbors, loving our actual next-door neighbors, those persons with whom we go to school, those persons beside whom we work, those persons beside whom we live every single day. We invited folks in the first week of the sermon series to download this from the digital bulletin or pick up a copy of it out at the welcome desk. And it was a tool to help us learn the names of our next-door neighbors, jot them down and learn uh, what matters to our next-door neighbors, what is most important to them as we take a sacred interest in them and their lives. So how's it going? I'd love to hear stories about changes that you've made, differences you feel like it's making in those areas where you live and work and go to school. You'll find a link in the digital bulletin that's called, How Are You Neighboring? Let us know. Tell us a story. We would love to hear about the difference it makes when we put loving God and loving our neighbors first in all things. Would you pray with me? God of mercy and God of grace. Above all else, may we be faithful. Faithful to you. Faithful to what you tell us is most important. Faithful and obedient to your call in our lives and who you say we are. Lord, we love you. May the words of our mouths, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer, our root, our refuge, our everything. Amen. I grew up in a rural area out in the middle of nowhere. It was beautiful. And when you grow up out in the middle of nowhere, the power lines uh, often fail you. Because those power lines are stretched precariously through fields and forests and trees propped up on poles and other things. And when storms come, the high winds come through or the sleet and freezing rain will coat those power lines or coat the limbs and they fall down on the power lines and you are sitting in the dark at home. 
And I was a little bit scared of the dark as a kid. And so when I was in the dark, I felt alone. And what did my family do when it got dark? Well, when it was dark, we looked for the light. And so we said to ourselves, where was the last time we saw that flashlight? (laughs) We knew it was around here somewhere. Was it in the living room, in the kitchen, in the den? And when we found it, oh, we were so grateful because we'd turn it on and that light would remind us we were not alone. We could see each other. We'd light candles and put them around. My dad would get a card game going. My mom would pull out that battery-powered radio and she'd get us up and dancing when a really good song would come on. Light can change the darkness because we can see each other in it and know we are not alone. Well, whether we live today in rural areas or not, whether our power lines are now overhead or underground, storms still come. The storms can come in thunder, storms and high winds, sleet and freezing rain still. And those storms can come in grief and suffering, mental illness, addiction, the loss of a job, questions bigger than we are. And when those storms come, it tends to knock those things we've had propping us up. And we can find ourselves yet again in the darkness. And when darkness sets in, we can feel mighty alone in the midst of it. When darkness comes, what do we do? We do what my family did, and we look for the light. Where was it that we last saw it? I know there was a flashlight around here somewhere. Was it at school? Was it at work? Was it there the last time I went to church? Where have I seen that flashlight last? So that I might be together with someone else and not alone, but somewhere in the presence of God. Jesus, it seems, knew that life would be like this. A mixture of storms and calm. A mixture of light and dark. A mixture of smooth and rough patches. He knew that we would need easily accessible sources of light that were easy to find, not hard to get to, to guide us to a connection with the God who loves us. So Jesus planted innumerable sources of light in the world around us. We read about them today. Angie read our scripture passage for us today from Matthew chapter 5. Those verses come from the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the largest collections of Jesus' teachings. In it, Jesus is sitting on a mountain teaching the disciples and others who are listening about how the children of God are meant to be different. In the section that immediately precedes what Angie read for us today, there's something called the Beatitudes, which describes for us how we are meant to be different to live sacrificially, to live with humility, compassion, and grace, to not live in ways that are judgmental, to be people who have integrity. And then Jesus says to those who are listening, when we live like this, when you and I live like this, we 
are the light of the world. The Greek in what Jesus says there matters. He says, you, plural, are the light of the world. You all, or where I come from, y'all, are the light, singular, of the world. That we, as brothers and sisters of Jesus, are meant to be these reflections of God's love that is something different in the midst of the world, that is compassionate and humble and merciful and graceful and not judgmental peacemakers who live with integrity in the midst of the world are meant to be light representing the one true Jesus Christ so that when the storms come and darkness falls and somebody's saying where is that flashlight I knew it was around here somewhere where do they find it they find it in you they find it in you They find it in you online. They find it in you and every one of us who call ourselves the children of God are meant to be representatives of God's love and light on this earth. And we're not supposed to be hard to find. In a garage or under a bushel basket, Jesus says we're meant to be like on a lampstand, like a city on a hill, something that others can find from even very far away. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they see God in you. That is quite something, isn't it? That they would see God in you and in me. William J. Toms writes, Be careful how you live. You may be the only Bible some other person reads. There's another quote a lot like it. Preach the gospel at all times and only use words if necessary. That one's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, but we're not really sure if he said it. Nevertheless, I like the quote. These sayings and our scripture today are meant to make us aware of ourselves. Self-awareness of how we live out our witness of faith. Realizing that who we are matters every single day. It matters when everyone is looking as much as it matters when no one is. This is about authentic and genuine discipleship the idea is incredible is it not that God's nature would come to be known by our nature that God's presence would come to be known by our presence in someone else's life in who we are in what we do and say beside the people who see us most our everyday next door neighbors and those with whom we live and work, that through your love for them, they will see and experience God's. Let your light shine. People in the dark are looking for it. Why are we talking about this in our neighboring series? The authors of the book, J. Pathak, Dave Runyon, suggest that we check our motives for being really good neighbors says that we do an internal check to make sure the building of relationships is based on prayer and reading our scriptures and based on how we learn to live out our faith together, that it comes from a healthy place, 
not from a desire to change or convert anyone. Because on one hand, this is a book about evangelism and living faith beside our neighbors. And on the other hand, this book is not about evangelism at all. It is about simply being the people God has called us to be no matter where we are. But here particularly in our everyday lives beside the people who see us most often. Some evangelism books teach us to be neighborly solely for the purpose of sneaking in uh, Jesus later, like a bait-and-switch approach or having um, something attached to every invitation like strings that we're trying to pull. The authors write that this is not an evangelism strategy, and if evangelism is our only motive, then we won't be very good neighbors. The authors authors say, too, that the gospel must never be an ulterior motive. It can be an ultimate one, but not an ulterior motive like we've always got something hidden up our sleeves. We don't love our neighbors so they will believe what we believe. We don't love our neighbors so they will change. We love our neighbors because we're called to love our neighbors even if they don't love God or us in return, or if their dogs still dig up our bulbs every spring. We love our neighbors so that when storms come and darkness falls and props falter, the neighbor will know he has seen a flashlight around here somewhere, and he'll remember he's experienced it in you. Give you a call, give you a text, knock on your door to come and find you so that he can be strengthened by the way God lives in you again. That's our motive. Putting skin on God's love for someone else and living out our faith right where we are in ways that are genuine, honest, and true. What does being a light look like? In a previous church, we had a storm, an actual snowstorm that knocked everybody's power out. And I couldn't get out, and I was sitting there in the parsonage wondering what I could do in ministry that day since I couldn't get out. So I started calling people. And I thought, well, I'd start by calling the widows in the congregation and check on them. And when I did, the first person I called said, well, you wouldn't believe it. Someone I'll call Joe just stopped by, brought me hot soup and bread, and came to check on me. I thought, wow. And then the next person I called, I said, how are you doing? She said, well, Joe, just stopped by and brought me hot soup and bread and came to check on me. The next person I called, how are you doing? Well, Joe had just been by. What do you know? Hot soup and bread and to check on me. And then I called Joe. And Joe said, well, his wife had been cooking this big pot of soup when the power went out and they didn't want to waste it. So he thought he'd take it and go check on his neighbor's. We know God's light when we see it, don't we? What does it look like to be the light of God? B.J. Priest, our executive director, told me a story not long ago. She was here after hours one day doing something with Girl Scouts, and someone stopped by. Uh, That person said he happened to be in the area, and he saw some cars in the parking lot here at Ebenezer, and so he thought he'd take a chance. He wanted to talk to his Axis leader. 
What is AXIS? AXIS is our high school student ministry, and our director, Michelle, puts students in small groups and assigns some of you who are adult volunteers to be with them and walk through high school with them so that they have someone to talk to as they go through all those difficult things in life. And this person, BJ said, clearly did not look like he was in high school anymore. In fact, he told her that he had graduated in 2006, and now it was 2019. Thirteen years later, that man is in this area when storms are coming in his life, and he wants to talk to his axis leader. How incredible is that? That is being a light to have walked with someone through storms before and to be there again. That person's here in worship this morning. Thank you, Mike Poff, for being and one of our Axis leaders. You're still in touch with that gentleman today, you told me. And when I asked Mike about it, he said, it's no big deal. I beg to differ. <laughs> I think it's quite a big deal for someone to have wondered where that flashlight was and they knew they had experienced it, had seen it here at Ebenezer when they were back in high school and to come back 13 years later and look for it again. It matters when we live out our faith right beside other people and put skin on God's love for them. David Lose writes, Being salt and light isn't so much something we do. It's who we are. Are. And each time we come to church, we are reminded that whatever our successes and failures, whatever our good deeds or misdeeds, whatever we've done or has been done to us, nevertheless, our essential identity is as God's beloved children who are called to be light to the world. And in the thousands of years since the Sermon on the Mount, that has not changed. What does being a light look like? It's praying for your neighbor who's told you over the trash cans that he's lost his job. It's making a casserole and taking it over to someone who's just come home from surgery. It's sitting on the soccer practice sidelines with another parent and listening to them tell you about how hard it is juggling working from home and COVID and kids in and out of school and taking care of a mother-in-law all at the same time. This is what being a light looks like in our lives. And my husband, frankly, is better at this than I am. I work long hours and I'm a big introvert and my husband is not. And he is loving and warm. And I could fill out this neighboring sheet. I know my neighbor's names and I know a little bit about them. But my husband really knows them, has heard their stories. He goes fishing with them. He goes and plays tennis with them. He does projects in the yard. And just the other week, he was smoking pork in our smoker in the driveway. And after we took the meat off, well, what do you know? There's a whole bunch of really nice warm charcoal left in the bottom of it. So what did he do? He took out his phone and he and our son started texting and calling the neighbors, inviting them to a s'mores party in our driveway. We had marshmallows and chocolate and graham crackers and he thought, why waste the charcoals? Let's have some fun. And so we're going to invite you to do that too as a church. We put together s'mores bags that you can sign up for at the welcome desk today and have your own s'mores party in your own driveway or smoker or fire pit and invite your neighbors to come. Let's get to know our neighbors and love them 
well. The witness of those who follow Christ matters as much today as it did thousands of years ago. May others see the gospel in us so that when storms come, as they do for all of us, and those props that we've made falter, and darkness comes, and people start to look for the light, they know they've seen it around here somewhere. May they find it, Jesus says, in you, because they live and work and go to school on this planet beside you where you're living out your faith and being faithful. Amen and amen.